0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation, our show here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Nikolai Zygulko, Professor of Management and Co-Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management. I'm joined by my co-host, Harbir Singh, also Professor of Management and Co-Director of the Mac Institute. Uh, Just a reminder, we're live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Now, we're having a very interesting show today. Uh, we'll be spending this hour with three of our colleagues from the University of Pennsylvania who've just published a book called Managing Discovery in the Life Sciences, Harnessing Creativity to Drive Biomedical Innovation. So this book is both about the science and the management behind biomedical innovations. Now, what makes your book really so interesting, at least sort of in my view, is that you really taking a broad perspective, right, on the innovation problem. Uh, Your book examines the interplay of scientists, managers, investors, and regulators kind of involved in this process of discovering new drugs and medical devices. Now, I guess in part this sort of almost reflects the diversity of the authors, right? We have a a biology professor, we have a management professor who was trained as a sociologist, and we have a management professor who was trained as an economist. And so, For the whole hour here, we have uh, Phil Ray. He's a professor of biology and also the director of the Life Sciences and Management Program at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Right now in the studio, we also are joined by Rob Burns, a professor of healthcare management. Uh, And then in the second half of the show, the third member of the team, Mark Pauli, a professor of healthcare management at Wharton, will also join us. So for now, we're getting this conversation started with Phil and Robert. So thank you, first of all, so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for inviting us. Our pleasure. pleasure.
1: Great. So maybe let's start with the simple question of how did the three of you decide to write this book? Maybe, Phil, we can start us off.
2: Yeah, I mean, really, there were two phases to it. Um, way back uh, 2012, um, Mark and I were having a meal in, um, in Penna, in the, in the restaurant, um, and uh, we were reflecting on uh, some of the material that we we're sharing with the students, and, and I was also reflecting on some writing I'd done for American scientists where I'd been digging deep into various stories, examples being the, the statin story and the ivermectin story, which incidentally isn't in the book, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a, a gripping story. And um, it occurred to us that maybe we should combine forces, given that pedagogically, we'd been engaged in communicating the economics and the management matters. And that was something that Mark was the, the guy for. And I was communicating the science that was relevant to those manage- management issues. And I think then, uh, several years later, when Mark stepped down from the directorship of the program, um, he said, "Well, if we're going to do anything about this, we better do it now." And that's, I think, when Mark decided that it was a good time to memorialize uh, the pedagogical activities that we have been engaged in. And we felt that we were in an even more unique position because we not only had mark who is a healthcare economist in play myself i'm a biochemist but we also had rob burns who had joined leadership of the program he'd come on as a co-director and he was a sociologist who was um really supremely interested in the in the healthcare ecosystem
0: yeah
3: yeah Great. rob well you know the the genesis of this book ties back to this program and uh-huh. this you know Penn's a unique place with all these multidisciplinary majors and things like that. And Penn integrates knowledge, you know, President Gutman's initiative. But this is a program where we're actually integrating knowledge from multiple disciplines and training undergraduates in dual degrees in biology and business. We're the only university in the world who's doing that. And this is perhaps the only school where you could do that because they have an undergraduate business school. Yeah, Then you have a phenomenal science program. You have all the wonderful discoveries coming out of uh, the Penn Health System and uh, the companies they're spinning off. And so it's, we have this uh, unique lab here mm-hmm. at University of Pennsylvania where uh, all these different faculty from all these different disciplines are basically two blocks apart. And so it fosters the interaction among everybody. Then you have the university putting these, these dual degree programs together. You have Roy Vagelos funding this dual degree program in life sciences and management. And then you bring together faculty you otherwise would never meet. So, right. I, you know, Phil's the only biochemist I know. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's the only bio, but I teach a core introductory course with him. And so I've been learning science on the fly for uh-huh. the last five years, sitting in class with Phil. And conversely, he's learning management and sociology for yeah. me. This is a unique place where the faculty are learning on the fly, just as the students are yeah. learning. And so we have this lab and this book just sort of flows out of this pen
1: environment. Great. So the book is about biomedical innovation. And now you open up a newspaper and most likely you'll find a line, something like the big pharma model is broken. Right. So everyone is talking about that. Um, and you have a very nuanced uh, answer to that, that question. So can you tell us a little bit about what's your response to someone saying, you know, Big Pharma model is broken.
3: Well, you know, I, I don't want to steal Mark's thunder. No, no, He's coming out in the no, second half, no, okay. and he wrote the chapter. <laughs> but I think I can, I can paraphrase yeah. it, and I'll let him yeah. elaborate further. And that is, Big Pharma model is not broken. It's basically been in a steady state for the last 50 years. Uh, what's, what's happening, though, is we're spending more money on the R&D and not getting any extra output for it. But we're not getting any worse output for it either. So it's it's a question of efficiency, not productivity, in terms of, you know, the number of new molecules coming mm-hmm. to the market. And Mark Mark's chapter goes through, you know, the incentives were put in place because of insurance reimbursement and the fact that drug companies knew that they were going to get reimbursed for their drugs, even if they weren't the top of the line, best in class thing. And so they had an incentive to come up with lesser quality molecules and bring them to market. Uh, and then those things don't necessarily sell well, they may not even get approved, maybe, you no know, increased productivity. And so the incentives were put in place by the insurance system. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be Mark's argument. But in terms of productivity, it's been a flatliner, yeah. you know, for the last 40, 50 years. And every, every year in our class, we go through the latest statistics to see if there's an uptick or a downturn. You know, and it varies year by year. Right now, there's like a two-year uptick, but nobody's sure if that's going to persist. Yeah.
1: So since we're at the university here and universities also play a role kind of in this drug discovery process, um, let's talk maybe a little bit about sort of the non-for-profit actors in this, in this space? Because clearly, we have a lot of time to talk about firms, but firm, so maybe let's start there. Uh, because if Big pharma is broken or not, kind of who else could step in, right? Uh, and so we have universities, we have government agencies like the NIH. And of course, we have like the Gates Foundation, right? That again, got lots of press for what they're doing. Um, so how do you see this playing out in this ecosystem, as you were just mentioning this? Uh, what's kind of the role of these other players.
3: Well I think I think what's happening now in uh, biopharma R and D is that the universities and the research institutes are playing a much bigger role. Uh, and that's because we're having more of a distributed R and D model, open innovation model, and a lot of the a lot of the basic science and some of the applied science being doing being done in the universities. So Penn is an obvious example. We have two new products coming out of here uh, and, and spin-off companies. Uh, so increasingly you can't rely on the pharmaceutical industry itself and they know this and so they're trying to increase their reach their reach into the universities their alliances with the universities we had a huge alliance with Novartis but I think that's the model going forward so these non-profit actors like universities research institutes will play an increasingly bigger role
2: yeah I, I'd endorse that and I, I think I'd go on uh, still further and I'd say that the the period of the small molecule is is um, sort of um, petering out, mm. uh, by and large, not, not not entirely. We have the Glebex story, which is a marvellous example of a small molecule that's been of incredible therapeutic impact for CML, chronic myeloid leukemia and such like. But I think um, we, we're going more down the um, sophisticated molecular cellular route. And I think as a result of that, it's the real sharp end Fundamental research that's spawning new innovation to a much greater extent than it did in previous years, and so the necessity of entities you know universities NIH Gates Foundation, etc is I, I would say ever more prominent uh, because of the need of uh, investigators that are almost exclusively um, focused on addressing fundamental basic science issues. And out of those, spin some fundamental therapeutics without necessarily having the objective of development of a therapeutic in mind. I think, you know, as you probably gathered from this book, a major play in the book is serendipity. And that is getting answers to questions that were never posed, but answers that turn out to be of incredible therapeutic value.
4: So tell us more about serendipity and innovation. I mean, one of the interesting things is Companies spend a lot of money on R&D. They have big teams and labs and research programs. And you actually uh, talk about uh, the unintended, the the branches that people never thought about, that those actually worked. And so that one is the role of serendipity. The other one is can you actually manage innovation? Do you want to start with that? What well, you know, the,
3: the serendipity part is first, you know, you're doing experiments. You have a hypothesis in mind. You're looking for some expected findings and then they don't turn out. The question is, what happens then? And what we found in these case studies is that part of the serendipity is just recognizing that there was some serendipity. Say, oh, those were some unusual findings, which I didn't expect. What do those mean? And then they pursue a new line of inquiry or investigation, which leads to some really fundamental discoveries. The other thing I'd mention about in terms of managing innovation is that you know, it gives credence to the things that academics always say to their deans and the presidents. You know, we need more time, we need more research funding, we need more students. Uh, and there's something to be said for having a lot of what we call corporate slack to finance, you know, open investigation, open inquiry into things, because that's what we see in a number of these these case studies. They weren't necessarily richly funded, but they required time. They required the the cooperation and uh, Collaboration with investigators all over the world, it required money, um, and oftentimes that's what it takes to pull these things off. It's it's not something you can engineer uh, and just do top-down. A lot of this stuff is bottom-up, you know, individual investigators driven by a passion, driven by curiosity, with a hypothesis that's unusual and pursuing it, even in the face of uh, doubting Thomases.
2: Um, something that's really relevant is is the life science and management program itself so I would say the imperative for that program which essentially is the brainchild of Roy Vagelis who is a, is a chemist who as, as you all know you know came became the CEO and president of Merck um, and I think that the, the thing that the LSM program is about is the objective of it if it has a, an objective is to put People in positions of responsibility with respect to the allocation and distribution of resources who have a sufficiently nuanced understanding of the science to identify a nascent proposition in the scientific sector without losing the potential significance of that finding in translation. And I think a, a major play into that in in several chapters in the book is an appreciation that some of the best leadership, when creativity is the, is the key determinant, not productivity, uh, some of the best leadership often comes from individuals that have a very very deep understanding of science. They came out of science themselves and then they acquitted themselves of the requisite skills in order to administer science, if you will and make calls on which projects to carry forward, which ones maybe are long-term objective projects, and which projects are maybe shorter term but could provide funds to support the longer-term projects.
3: Yeah, just to tie this into some academia, I mean, you're both in uh, corporate strategy. I recall the corporate strategy literature. Uh, saying that at least one stream of it saying that the key to strategy is resource allocation. Mm-hmm. You know, not necessarily the people at the top, but the, the people controlling the budgets down below and where they allocate the finite resources and being willing to seed and continue seeding programs that may not
4: necessarily be paying off. We see that in a number of the case studies mm-hmm. here. I think what you just said about uh, that's, uh, by the way, I really that other point you made was fascinating about really knowing the technology and the science because otherwise you know you start misallocating resources but i think what's very interesting in what you said rob was the point about slack and uh, these days it's very much in fashion to be lean and mean you know that let's let's uh, release cash flow let's you know scale down uh, facilities Uh, i think you're making a different case
3: Well, it can go both ways. I mean, there's some case studies in the book where people came up with discoveries basically experimenting at their kitchen table over wine and cheese, using off-the-shelf parts that weren't made for these kinds of experiments, just basically developing prototypes from scratch, you know, tinkering in their garage. So some people have done it lean. Uh, but I think if we're talking about the biopharma industry, they're not necessarily going to get away with doing this in a garage. I mean, it's going to really re- take a significant allocation of capital to see more discoveries go through, especially if it's distributed across a larger ecosystem of players. And time. And time. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, the lessons from the book is that it's across time and
4: across space. Across space and yeah. so in, it's basically global. Mm-hmm. So the other question that intrigued me was this idea of the interorganizational clusters and, you know, the role of Cambridge and San Diego and, you know, the three main elements there. The triple helix. The triple helix. Yes, exactly. So tell us
3: more about that. Well, you know, it's just two case studies. And so right. you can't generalize from that. But, you know, everybody in the world wants to be like Kendall Square. I'm, mm-hmm. Every day I pick up some reading where this city wants to be a medical hub or this city wants to be a biotech cluster i was uh, we were teaching on uh, china's healthcare system they're trying to develop four of their large cities into biotech clusters, mm-hmm. but their approach is basically top down and it 's not necessarily the case that they've they bought into this triple helix or can replicate the triple helix, and that means you have a supportive local government which is willing to you know, uh, extend deals to entrepreneurs and startup companies so they'll co-locate they'll co- there. And then you have a rich bed of scientific institutions. You know, and, and you're not going to get much better than Harvard and MIT mm-hmm. up in Boston. And, and then on top of that, you need private equity and venture capital. So that was the triple helix that we identified in Kendall Square and some of a little bit in San Diego. But, you know, those are the necessary ingredients, whether or not they're s- it's sufficient – is, is a whole different question. There's a whole literature on these economic clusters that I'm not necessarily the master of, um, but it, but that's one of the things we see, you know, in at least these these cities that other places are going to try to replicate. But I'm not sure you can replicate Harvard and MIT in the short
0: term.
2: I think I think uh, as a as someone who spends a lot of time um, teaching science, um, I think that the cluster effect and and it's incorporated into into that chapter that's very very significant i think is that um basic scientists who are primarily academics realize that there's somewhere where their fundamental science can go and there's gainful employment for really talented young scientists in Mm -hmm. in biotech for example and i think that is a very very significant play into the equation and I think it's a very significant play into the equation, certainly in certain parts of the world, in, in the UK and Europe, for example, where funding for fundamental research is, is um, scarce and hard, hard to obtain. And I, and I think a, a model I often use when I'm teaching biochemistry is to point out that some of the fundamental discoveries that I'm describing, they, they were not actually done in universities. They were done at places like Genentech or they were done by Shimadzu. Some of the most mm-hmm. fundamental developments in proteomics came out of Shimatsu. A Nobel Prize came out of Shimatsu. Mm-hmm. Likewise, GeneTech.
3: Another thing is, if you look at where these entrepreneurs come from and what the seed bed in which they grow, it, it's very interesting. I, we we did a study with a colleague at Stanford on medical device entrepreneurs. You know, they're mostly physicians, mm-hmm. but almost all of them had a bent in engineering. Whether their father was an engineer or they they minored in engineering in college, or they they double majored in engineering. And so they had this interest in tinkering with things, playing with their hands, making prototypes. And then they just happened to go to the right place, oftentimes Stanford or Duke, where they're surrounded by some other people who help them scale up this business, who provide the seed funding for it. And so I think you kind of have to look for the constellation of these different Mm -hmm. actors coming together and some very favorable seed beds for this stuff to germinate. And I suppose the role of community, right? The community yes, of scientists, venture right. capitalists.
2: Entrepreneurs in particular. But you're yes. surrounded Picking by a up. lot of
3: other people like you, and you're kind of feeding off them, and you're learning from them. They're helping you, like, solve through these problems. That could be both a local community as well as a global community.
1: Uh, for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zegelko, and my co-host is Harbir Singh. We're speaking with uh, Phil Ray and Rob Burns, uh, two of the authors of the new book, Managing Discovery in the Life Sciences. Now, I think what what really, to me, sets this book apart is that you have these in-depth studies of individual diseases and and kind of where different kind of solutions came from and, and really fascinating stories around this. So let's maybe start with cardiovascular diseases like the number one killer. Um, And uh, one of the key discoveries in this arena has been, of course, statins. And uh, intriguingly, they were discovered in Japan um, by Akira Endo, who worked for Sankyo, a Japanese company. But they were not brought to market by them, but they were brought to market by Merck. So what were some of the lessons that we can draw from that particular case?
2: Yeah, so I mean, that's an interesting story. So Akira Endo was uh, originally trained as an agricultural bike. Um, And uh, he started his work actually on uh, clarifying fruit juices, coming up with enzymes that clarify fruit juices. Um, And I I think the the key play in that story, as you read in the book, is that he went and um, had a, a leave of absence for two years, really as a recognition of what he'd managed to accomplish as a young biochemist. And he went to New York City. And that's when he became cognizant of the scale of cardiovascular disease in the West. Uh, uh, cardiovascular disease was virtually unheard of in Japan at that, that time. Um, and I, I, so then he went back to Japan and engaged in this huge number of screens of fungal filtrates for agents that interfere with agostral or cholesterol biosynthesis. Um, and... I, I think that the, 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 what happened there was that, one, he was operating in Japan, and uh, Sankyo did not have the awareness of the extent of cardiovascular disease at that time. They, they were in a, an, in a condition in which the cardiovascular disease was relatively rare. And at that point in time, no one had considered the possibility of the identification of therapeutic agents that could address the cholesterol matter, which came out of the Framingham study, which was something operated out of the United States of America, and I, I think because it had never been done before, I think the thing that put the um, stalled that research program were the animal trials that sported uh, a cellular histology that looked like a pre-cancer. As it turns out, that was not the case. It was more a manifestation of elaboration of a a membrane system that's involved in cholesterol biosynthesis as a compensatory response to uh, statin therapy. And um, Merck at that time were aware that Sankyo had a patent on statins and they were investigating the statins. And I think In in Merck's case, what was so wonderful is that the leadership of research at that time, the president of research at that time, was Roy Vagelis. And Roy Vagelis had trained as um, a cardiologist at uh, Columbia. Uh, He had worked with very sick heart patients. uh, And he had also spent the bulk of his career as a fundamental biochemist working on lipid metabolism. So he's perfectly positioned to understand this nascent technology and what its true significance might be. And as a result, Merck um, received a sample of the agent in question. It's called mevastatin, the very first statin to be discovered. And they started doing trials. And on the basis of those trials and on the basis of the sort of advice they were getting from some of the clinicians with whom they were interfacing, they realised that they were onto something that could be huge and of really profound significance. And I think it is that they realised that even if there were some off-target effects of the statins, which, as it turns out, is probably not the case, uh, they felt that the benefit to individuals that would likely succumb to cardiovascular disease in their 30s or their 40s without some sort of therapeutic intervention was uh, far outweighed that risk. And I think that was mm-hmm. what seeded um, what eventually happened. And Merck carried the product forward, as you know, not mevastatin. They went forward with an alternate to mevastatin. Yeah. Right.
4: And and so when you go forward in that, you see the story of Lipitor and yes. the the you know, Warner Lambert coming up with something that was very innovative and then... It's commercial. The 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 most successful drug in history. Um, can you sort of talk about what are the lessons learned in that journey?
2: So, um, again, I mean that's a wonderful example of of serendipity. Uh, it was Warner, Warner Lambert that that started the um, Lipitor cascade before they were bought by Pfizer, and that was thanks to the work of Bruce, who was. Um, uh, a very young postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan. And he was adept at tinkering around with organic chemicals. And he was the first guy to do an in vitro synthesis of a statin. He recapitulated the synthesis of mevastatin. And Warner Lambert got wind of that. And um, they hired Bruce Roth. And I think what then drove the development of the statins to eventually give rise to Lipitor with, with one or two um, uh, byways um, was, I think, the recognition that if Lipitor, or atorvastatin as it was called at the time, if that were to enter the market, it had to have a significant edge over pre-existent statins because it was the sixth statin to enter market. And I think that's when they push very, very hard with respect to cold organic synthetic technology, and we're in a position in which they could preferentially resolve a particular isomeric form of atorvastatin, and thereby double the um, efficacy of the agent, meaning that individuals could take far less of the therapeutic to get even more benefit than they would get from the statins that were currently on market. And I think that's what really solved the case.
3: You know, Phil's comments basically show you that you need to know the science as well as the business to -hmm. see how these products and companies emerge.
1: So, Rob, you were involved in a chapter, I think, on balloon angioplasty. Yes. And I think that was partly the kitchen table uh, innovation, yes. innovation story, yes. right? Yeah. Very much so. So, yeah. so most of the chapters are about drug discovery, and this was also sort of a chapter about medical devices, right? right. Um, so what were some of the new insights that came from looking at medical devices?
3: Well, you know, I stumbled on that one. Um, I was reading, <clears throat> as I was doing a study of all these uh, medical device entrepreneurs, and I study a, I stumbled across a, uh, uh, someone who said that Uh, balloon angioplasty was one of the 10 most significant medical innovations of the 20th century. And I knew what it was, but I didn't really know how it came about. And I didn't fully appreciate why it was one of the 10 most. So what I did is I hired three MBAs, two of whom were cardiac surgeons to help me go back and, you know, dig up all this information. And it just turned out to be one serendipity after another. And I think what was particularly interesting about this innovation is the fact that the pioneers were experimenting on themselves. And so they were basically cutting open their veins and inserting things into their veins to see how this stuff would work. And then they'd they'd fashion not only their own catheters, but their own balloons at the end of these catheters using all kinds of wacky materials just to see if this stuff would work. You know, come up with what we call proof of concept and so these were people who obviously believed in what they were doing because they were willing to risk their lives for it. And they're, you know, they're mavericks. That's basically, you know, one of the things we teach about in innovation is sometimes it takes mavericks to pull mm-hmm. things off. That's who these people were. And one of them actually got the Nobel Prize 20 years after being ridiculed for what he was doing. That's just how maverick some of these yeah. people are. So it's sort of a fascinating study. And then the guy, the guy Andreas Grunzig, who's, who's recognized as the pioneer, He was ridiculed by almost all of his colleagues, and it took a couple innovation champions as we talk about, you know, people who are superior in the hierarchy, who recognize that he may be on to something to support him, to protect him from all the other colleagues who just wanted to torpedo his research. You know, and the setbacks, the resilience coming back from, you know, setbacks and things like that because patients died doing some of these procedures. And, And so you learn a lot of these lessons about just perseverance as well as passion and commitment.
1: Yeah. Now, I could imagine that the adoption of that might have been even harder, right? Because it is now actually have to change the behavior of doctors rather than behavior of well, which, which drug do I prescribe. But now it's actually, right, sort of a pretty much an art of putting this in. And now I have to do it in a different way. So, well, the take up was
3: actually pretty quick after it was proven. It was just getting to that point. And then uh, once his results started getting published in the mainstream journals, and then he would demonstrate it in front of his colleagues, you know, in various laboratories, I th- the take-up was pretty fast because everybody realized this is a much better way mm-hmm. of treating this disease than what we'd been doing.
1: Well, uh, I think we need to take a short break now. Um, when we come back, I will continue our conversation about the book Managing Discovery in the Life Sciences. Um, Rob Burns, we want to uh, thank you very much for joining us for the first half uh, of our show. Uh, Phil Ray is going to stick around for the next half. and. We'll be joined uh, by the third co-author of this book, Mark Pauli, an economist and professor of healthcare management. Uh, I'm your host, Nikolai Zickelko. My co-host is Habir Singh, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we've been talking about the last half hour with uh, the authors of the new book, Managing Discovery in the Life Sciences, Harnessing Creativity to Drive Biomedical Innovation. Uh, It's written by three of our colleagues here at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Phil Ray, Professor of Biology and the Director of the Life Sciences and Management Program is still with us here in the studio. And we are now joined by Mark Pauli, a professor in Wharton's Healthcare Management Department. Uh, Mark, let's start with you uh, and coming back to this question of (laughs) is Big Pharma broken? And now we hear the economist side of the story.
0: Yes, so I think uh, the the correct statement is it's not any more broken than it ever was. It's <laughs> not, not really correct to imagine there was some kind of golden age uh-huh. that we've fallen from. Uh, we actually have, provide some empirical evidence in the book on two things that are used to be indicators or supposed to be indicators of of uh, 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 problems. One is the uh, which is something Rob was talking about, which is the rate of flow of new innovative products. Uh, and uh, the actual uh, empirical evidence suggests that the, that that rate of introduction has been pretty much stable, maybe even slightly increasing over time, uh, if you uh, look at look at it over a, a long time period. Now you can pick a period. There was a period in the late 1990s when there was a, uh, um, a substantial uh, growth in the introduction of the new products, but that was because The FDA changed its rules and allowed drug companies to pay for their own randomized controlled trials so they kind of cleaned out the inventory of Mm -hmm. products they were working on, put them on the market all at once, but then after that blip uh, was averaged out. The rate of growth, uh, the rate of introduction of new products, has been pretty stable over time. I'm not a show for the pharma industry or anything, but I do think it's worthwhile saying that uh, that they're still turning out some wonderful new products, and if anything, the uh effectiveness of the products that are introduced measured by things like if they're first in class and things like that has actually improved a little bit so that's good news the the bad news but then we argue it's not really anybody's fault uh is that the um uh, cost per new drug developed is has increased substantially over time it's now uh, uh there's there's actually quite a, a, an argument and a fuss people make about this but uh, at least some estimates suggest it's as high as $2 billion per new drug that actually makes it to market. Now, most of that money is not actually money that was spent on the drug that made it to market. It's the payment for all of the, mm-hmm. the dry holes and the attempts that failed. And a big chunk of it also is the cost of capital That's because the, uh, the, the time period between investment and return <clears throat> is so greatly delayed. Uh, but what we uh, found evidence for and conclude is that uh, the usual explanations for this, like scientists just want to get grants and they don't really want to make their products available to the commercial market or Firms are just thick-headed when it comes to recognizing wonderful new products. Uh, those may all be true, actually, but uh, we uh, actually favor an alternative explanation that says as real income has grown and as insurance coverage of drugs has grown, uh, the uh, 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 revenue potential of a, of a new product has increased and so if um, a new product can generate more revenue uh, than was true 10 years ago, it's going to make sense to invest in products with a lower chance of success mm-hmm. because the higher revenue is going to offset that. So um, if you really want to know who's responsible for the uh, increasing uh, cost of new products, uh, I tell people, look in the mirror. If only you were mm-hmm. as poor and as poorly insured as you were 20 or 30 years ago. Now, a few people are, but most Aren't uh, it, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't pay to bring these new drugs to market? But uh, the the analogy actually goes back to one of my favorite economists from the nineteenth century, David Ricardo, who explained that um, if uh, what determined the rent of land, well, the the uh, and the productivity of agriculture, if the demand for cabbages increased, then you would. Plant cabbages on less cabbage suitable land. The productivity would go down, uh, but it would be good news rather than bad news. Assuming that's a good thing to demand more cabbage. Uh, so yeah. the, the same same story here. Right. So the finger pointing, uh, which is endemic in both w- within the pharmaceutical. Well, there's there's finger pointing and there's patting yourself on the back to mix two metaphors. But uh, neither of those, uh, uh, we think, explain really what's going on, that what's going on is the result of some things that are good, like high real, higher real income, greater value people put on health care than plasma TVs and spread of insurance coverage. Uh, and so what we're seeing is a kind of uh, expected economic reaction that uh, firms will invest in more and more risky propositions because the chances of being able to get the money back have increased. So that, I think, is important. And then I guess the other uh, uh, point I'd make about... Uh, uh, uh the, the model is, the old model used to be, uh, the big pharma model used to be what we call screening dirt. Uh, mm-hmm. you, they'd come back with the latest set of things from Costa Rica. It would be dirt and venom and bugs and things like that. And then uh, actually a, a, a very effic- efficient technique was developed to have uh, automated screening to see if any of those, there might be some molecules there that were effective against some disease or other uh discovery has moved away from that toward what's called rational drug discovery but one of the messages that we convey in the book is that although it's called rational drug discovery there's a lot of um irrationality and a lot of serendipity uh the plot or almost all of our drugs is like a Disney movie where when everybody's really happy and things are going great, you know, five minutes later something terrible is <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> uh, the, the, the dogs will get tumors, yeah. as in the case of uh, the uh, of, of, uh, of the statins, or uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the method won't work, or f- sometimes even some, the the uh, market will lose interest in yeah. your particular product, or. Fail to carry it through. That was true of uh, of uh, one of the diabetes drugs that we yeah. looked at. So there's a lot of ways. Uh, that, yeah, and that's that's what we concluded. Uh, 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 Rob mentioned we talk. We I think can come up with some um, ne- some um, uh, necessary conditions for drug discovery. We know how to kill it, yeah. uh, but sufficient conditions how to make it happen for sure that still remains to be determined.
2: I, I the other thing I'd add to that and it, it's slightly tangential but I, I think it's 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 something that I, I think I'm very very aware of and that is um stratification of disease to the point of orphanization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think in the advent of uh human genome project and and um broad range uh genomic characterization on a, on a very personal on a one-on-one uh, level is that the development of forms of intervention I think will and has already shown indications of that effect will become a lot more strategic now what that means is that um, the sample population that will be registered for drug trials will be a sample population for which the probability of a beneficial effect is significantly greater than it was in, say, the early days of the statins and the antihypertensives, where you were really dealing with individuals with cardiovascular disease as an aggregate. And I think the more we come to understand of uh, lipidology and cardiovascular disease, the more we come to appreciate the degree to which that that, that disease is stratified and that there are certain forms of intervention that have a very high probability of working, but there are other forms of intervention that have a very low probability of working. And so I think the model is going to transition um, a little bit away from the blockbuster model, where you can bring benefit to literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, but bringing benefit to uh, smaller groups of individuals, but actually bringing benefit to those individuals with less off-target effects to individuals that do not get benefit from those therapeutics.
0: So actually the economics of that personalized or precision medicine is interesting too and a little bit frustrating because uh, if you have a product uh, that, say, as a lot of products do, say, doesn't work for everybody. If you give it to the the population of people at risk for the condition, it only works for some. Let's say it works one time out of ten. Uh, uh, that uh, 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 means that you can't charge a a very high price for it because nine times out of ten it won't work. Now, suppose there's a companion diagnostic, a genetic marker that tells you uh, who is the one in ten it will work for. Well, the result ought to be that you could charge ten times higher price because it's ten times more likely uh, to work than the previous Mm -hmm. incarnation. So... Uh, you know, that is why nobody likes to sit next to economists at dinner parties because we always have bad news to go along <laughs> with the good news. But the good news is it's, it's a great thing, actually, not to take a drug that can have quite severe Same. side effects if it's not going to work for you. But the bad news is somebody may actually have to end
4: up – it will end up paying more So I had drug. a question exactly along those lines, the rise of personalized medicine mm-hmm. and how the rules are changing you know and can we elaborate on that i mean there's of course the question of pricing and targeting there's a question of delivery um many other questions and on, on what is a promising future i think
2: I, I just interject and just add i think what mark williams would like me to say and that is that i think physicians have always been practicing personalized medicine good physicians have what we're talking about That's is precision true. medicine precision yeah. okay yes yeah
0: uh well i th- i think the um, general actually have just finished a paper on the insurance coverage of, of a personalized or precision medicine and uh, the the basic message seems to be that insurers are going along with covering um the companion diagnostic and the drug if the overall package is cost effective uh, uh or or to put it the other way they they really insurers believe it or not really do hate to say no uh, but uh, they will do so if the package doesn 't pr- have sufficient effectiveness relative to its cost, but having said that uh, uh I think the 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 transition seems to be uh going pretty well uh, it 's aided by the fact that the, uh, frequently the number of people at risk is for the conditions for which these discoveries are made is relatively small, so even though you 're paying a lot. PER PERSON, THERE AREN'T THAT MANY PEOPLE. THE BIG PROBLEMS HAVE ARISEN okay, yeah. FOR uh, DISCOVERIES, WHETHER PERSONALIZED OR NOT, FOR WHICH THERE IS more, MORE THAN A FEW THOUSAND PEOPLE, THE BEST EXAMPLE BEING THE SOLVALDI uh, FOR HEPATITIS C, WHERE uh, well, AT LEAST WE WERE TALKING ABOUT PERHAPS A MILLION OR TWO PEOPLE THAT MIGHT, might NEED THAT uh, BENEFIT FROM THAT DRUG.
2: Moreover, in the case of uh, Sovaldi, it's curative. It's not a management therapeutic. It can give an unequivocal cure. Which And is, what that means is okay, your market no, diminishes. Right. Yes. Uh, with gra- it, the, the greater the success, the smaller your prospective market. That's and the, and
4: good, the price uh, would be really high, yeah. but you know, people are not used to that.
2: So
0: that's you know. right. It's good. The good news is, the bad news is it's $84,000 a exactly. year. The good news is after that's paid for the backlog of people who have hepatitis C, uh, then after that, you won't have to pay anything.
1: Again, there are lots of fascinating stories in the book. Uh, Let's maybe go to ACE inhibitors. Um, A story with snake venom. Now, that must be a cool story, first of all. Uh, But I think that the the part of the story that I like to maybe hone in for a little bit is kind of the initial reaction by the marketing department of Squibb um, that said, look, there's actually no market out there, right? Because this is sort of an interesting question that every company faces when a new product comes out. They do some kind of market sizing and they have a certain view of the market. What went wrong there, at least initially? Do you want to interject that? Well,
0: I, I think, and- yeah, I think this is actually a theme that comes across in several of our case studies. If there is to be a heavy, it is usually the boys from marketing uh-huh. or the boys and girls from marketing <laughs> yeah. who don't always appreciate um, uh, the the value of the product, and uh, in particular. Um, uh, the the idea that uh, for one thing a highly valued product can be sold for high prices, uh, believe it or not, that's a relatively recent innovation. Mm-hmm. Although people have complained about drug prices, I imagine from the time of Asclepius. But uh, but that uh, that the, the, that if you uh, uh, can uh, put on the market a product that can add enough to health. Uh, uh, sooner or later, people figure out how to pay for it. Uh, the other thing, though, is that um, uh, the market can grow, if, uh, particularly if you can uh, keep people alive who otherwise would have died and if they're going to continue to need to use your drug. So that can actually allow the market mm-hmm. to be much larger. But it, it probably is a good fail-safe mechanism. Um, uh, after all, m- most ideas in pharma, like for that matter, most ideas in any business, yep. Um, they, uh, Rob and I are actually thinking of writing a book about this whose title would be, well, it sounded like a good idea at the time. <laughs> Most of them don't turn out to be good ideas, and so it's reasonable to be skeptical. And, uh, but uh, uh, persistence by, uh, by the champions of a product, and then something Phil already mentioned, the perception, uh, ability to perceive by higher-level management what things really do have kind of scientific legs. Uh, and uh, override uh, initial skepticism by the marketing department does seem to be the uh, recipe for success of many of the products that we look at in the case studies.
2: Such a recurrent theme, I think, is, um, for example, the statins. It was a surrogate endpoint. It was bringing down blood cholesterol levels. Well, was that necessarily going to be a remedy for cardiovascular disease? And it was only as a result of the 4S study, the Scandinavian Mm -hmm. statin study. That it was appreciated that yes, the incidence of repeat episodes of um, cardiovascular disease was diminished by some 30 to 40 percent. Uh, that was brilliant. Um, I think in the case of antihypertensives, um, it was not appreciated. It was recognized that it was a, a correlate of heart disease, but the significance of hypertension for progression of the disease and death from the disease was not fully appreciated, and you would only be aware of that once you've addressed that issue. And then I think a marvellous example coming back to um, stratification and orphanization is the Gleevec story. And there was a, a great deal of reluctance in carrying Gleevec for, forward because the, the affected population was really minuscule. But the thing that the marketing people failed to take into account or ostensibly failed to take into account is that that would be an expanding population. The more people mm. that survive mm-hmm. the disease, there are more people that have to continue with the therapeutic and exactly the same applies to antihypertensives and statins.
1: Yeah.
4: I think, uh, to me, the most interesting uh, part, and there are many, but uh, the idea of these clusters, and it, le- it leads to the question of the global significance of research in pharmaceuticals and life sciences. Uh, if clusters are so critical, then how do we see the evolution of science in this, area, in this domain? Some countries are trying. Singapore is trying to have a hub, for example.
0: Well, I think it it has proven challenging. Singapore has probably put one of the best efforts into it, and God bless them, they said, in contrast to some of the other Asian countries, if we discover some things that really work, we're going to let our own people have them, not just sell them to the rest of them the developed world, uh, but it uh, has proven very difficult to artificially create uh, hubs. Uh, uh, generally, the, as already was mentioned, uh, you, you need a pre-existing academic core uh, to, to have it make sense. And uh, I think it's uh, in, it, it, I, it certainly um, uh, there has been a fair amount of research trying to uh, understand what is it. They, you know, is it is, is, yeah. is chance conversations at the country club or right. is it in the water or what? Uh, uh, what we have to contribute, I guess, is this idea of serendipity that can arise from a lot of uh, uh, sources, including um, uh, things that, uh, that you hear about uh, kind of through the grapevine. And it's uh, better to be in the – I don't know what it, where this metaphor goes, but it's probably better to be in the middle of the grapevine than out on one of the tendrils. Uh, So that's better to be at the hub, uh, and maybe you'll notice that. And for that matter, uh, uh, despite sometimes the caricature that uh, drug companies are um, uh, uh, extremely possessive of their information, uh, the actual ecosystem of science is one in which ideas are actually shared quite generously until… (laughs) <laughs> Something looks like it really might work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in rinse, which case, uh, a, yeah, a curtain may descend. But uh, even there, there's ways to communicate and ways to, and, and people do communicate.
1: Uh, Phil, you co-wrote a chapter with Rob titled "Organizing Discovery: Wild Ducks Nested in Multi-Level Ecosystems." <laughs> uh, we need an explanation. What are the wild ducks?
2: Yeah. So the the wild ducks are. Uh, um, Individuals that are not your canonical straight A students who have done very well on their MCATs or their GREs and such like—they—they they are people that um, often have um, uh, a, a, a sort of astigmatic view on things. They—they they have a, a very novel view on things. They are extraordinarily passionate. Um, they are often introverts, uh, but capable faux extroverts on occasion. Um, I think I think those people are people that could so easily fall between the crack, um, not be picked up other than by, you know, the Steve Jobses of this world and such like. Um, something that sort of relates to what we were talking about a minute ago, and that is, you know, um, the globalization of exchange of information and you really do think about the Google effect Mm -hmm. and how many um, times in the years to come there will be instances of individuals who especially creative novel thinking individuals who latch on to an anecdotal piece of information and join some of the dots and come up with a new juxtaposition of information that was Never, never made before, and um, make a fundamental discovery in some sort of healthcare intervention um, yeah I, I think that mm-hmm. it it's very hard to describe a wild duck or a black sheep um, <laughs> they they're, um, and and i I think you know it is um spectacularly difficult to manage individuals it's like herding cats um. But nevertheless, when I look at the various stories that we were involved in writing, so often it's inst- instances of individuals who initially have an idea that others think is categorically wrong, and they have a passion for it, and they stay with it, and they carry it forward. Often they fly below the radar yeah. and carry it to a point at which it, the, the thrust of what... They are thinking is no longer being lost in translation. Yeah.
1: Well, Mark and Phil, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Unfortunately, that's all that we have sort of time for today. Uh, thank you all to the listeners uh, for joining us. Um, if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, please email us at businessradio at com, And of course, be sure to follow our show on Twitter at businessradio111. And of course, you can follow the Mac Institute at our Twitter handle, at Mac Institute, where we'll be also posting about the show. Uh, Mark and Phil, where can people learn more about the book? Is there a, a good website people can go to? or At the, the, Cambridge, the, the, University at the Press, Cambridge University Press. At the Cambridge University Press Okay, website, that, that, that'd be yes. great. So it, it's again... It's,
0: and I, I need to say it's actually yes. a beautiful book, too, largely mm-hmm. due to Phil, in terms of the co- both the cover design and it deals seriously with the science. So, Absolutely. So yes. if you are impressed by the beauty of uh, scientific diagrams, you'll you'll have a, a real treat in store. Yes, uh, yes.
2: I hasten to add there that that was uh, through working with Sarah Jarrett and Tina Horowitz. And all so right, that contribution is yeah. truly significant. Wonderful. That's, that's Once
1: again, well. special thank uh, to all our guests today, Rob, Mark, and Phil. Um, i also like to thank our producer, Brian Drew, as well as our sound engineer, Tatjana Zamis. Until next time, I'm Nikolai Zykelko, along with my colleague, Harvey Singh, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111.